Well, on uh, November 21st, 1943, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famous theologian, wrote a letter to his parents uh, from Tegel Prison, deep in the heart of Nazi Germany. He said this. He said, a prison cell like this is a good analogy for Advent. One waits, hopes, does this or that, ultimately negligible things. The door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. I think the comparison between Advent and a prison cell might seem kind of strange, Uh, right? Uh, It's dark. It's hopeless. Christmas is supposed to be about cheer, singing loudly for all to hear. Um, However, this particular type of of waiting that Bonhoeffer um, talks about he believes best prepares us for the Christian life. You see, how I wait for something I can eagerly expect with some level of confidence, the uh, arrival of a child or uh, a wedding day or the arrival of a longtime friend or something like that, that type of waiting is altogether different than how I wait for something less certain, uh, which is most of our waiting, right? A, A diagnosis, or a test results, or an impending difficult conversation. We need to learn how to wait uh, if we're going to be faithful Christians. Because the great paradox of Christmas and the Christian life, the life of faith, is that we wait for what we already know is going to happen. Right? We know how the story ends, but in life we don't always know how the road gets us there from here. Through Advent, we learn how to live in two concurrent realities. We've already been delivered, and yet our deliverance is still to come. We can sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and consider the the long-awaited arrival of the Messiah in Bethlehem, and at the same time, our present longing for his return. O come, O come, Emmanuel. So now as we we turn our attention to this passage from Isaiah this morning, uh, we we step back, as it were, some 700 years before the birth of Christ. And really what our passage, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 9. What our passage does is answer a really important question. What does Christmas time and the season of Advent mean for us today in this season Um, and in seasons of waiting and uncertainty. So we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Isaiah says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden... And the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the trampling, tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. So we're going to look at at three keys to understanding Christmas from this passage. Christmas means light is dawning. Christmas means peace is advancing. And finally, Christmas means a new king is coming. So first, Christmas means light is dawning. The Bible pretty consistently draws a connection between physical darkness and and evil and ignorance. To say that the world is in darkness is to say that it's filled up with, with evil and suffering and brokenness. Right? Just look at what, what's happening in the story of the birth of Jesus. In that, that singular story, there's injustice, there's violence, there's abuse of power, there's homelessness, uh, there's refugees fleeing oppression, families being ripped apart. Sounds like the world as it's always been. I mean, just stop and think about the Christmas story and how, how you would read it if you uh, unplugged it from all the pageantry. Right? Mary and Joseph make their way to Bethlehem because, uh, not because they want to, but because a foreign oppressive nation is exerting political power and control over their land. Uh, it's a 90-mile journey for them in the middle of winter over rugged terrain. They go south uh, along the flatlands of, of the Jordan River and then over the, the mountains surrounding Jerusalem and on into Bethlehem. It would have been in, in the winter. It's freezing there at night. Lots of rain in that season. Mary is nine months pregnant. And when they get there, Mary goes into labor. And, and, and what happens? Right? Oh, there's no room for them in the inn. Like, really think about that, though. What's going on there? Who, who's willing to step in? Who, who's helping this t- teen couple who's away from their family? Who's giving up their room? Where's Joseph's extended family, if this is where his family is from, Bethlehem? What's happening to this couple? Read between the lines, right? What's the explanation for the pregnancy, this miracle pregnancy, I'm sure people were saying, right? It's not a quaint story. All of that is is a bleak reflection of, of society, like all human societies, full of people that are, are looking out for themselves, Right, shutting the, the door on the poor, the outcast. It's a dark story. The Bible often compares God to the sun. Psalm eighty four eleven says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. Right? The sun is what gives us light. I know, groundbreaking to think about. It gives us light, it, it breaks the darkness, it's the source of our, our understanding. Um, our, our visual truth, we see by it. 
It's also the source of all life on earth, right? Without it, nothing could live. No plants, no animals, nothing. Remove the sun and, and, and we're gone. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. God is the sun, the source of all light and life. And if you orbit your life around him, you'll have these things. And if you don't, you won't. Right? If instead of orbiting your life around him, you orbit around your career or your kids or whatever, the result is darkness, spiritual darkness, breakdown, decay. I was reading a while ago about the, the British explorer Ernest Shackleton. In 1914, he took his ship to Antarctica. He and his crew planned to walk across the continent, um, cross over the South Pole, and go all the way to the other side, and uh, things went wrong. Um, the ship got stuck in the ice, and, and the crew had to fight just to survive and, and make it home. But what, what's interesting uh, is that his biographer recorded that the worst part of, of their experiences uh, that the men that survived wrote about and, and spoke about, the worst of it all, including starvation and freezing, the worst part was the darkness. That far south, the sun sets in May and doesn't rise again until July. There's no light for more than two months. And, and what these men found is that that kind of darkness, if you're not used to it and you don't know when it's going to end, it will drive you insane. Darkness without end. You've got no sense of direction or time. You're isolated, lost. That eventually, your mind and body start to betray you, these men found. You fall apart. Physical darkness brings this about, but so too does spiritual darkness. We talked a bit about this last week, right? The, the position we find ourselves in is one of spiritual blindness and darkness and death. We need, uh, we need a Savior. We need someone to step in and save us. And often what we do, like Andy said last week, is like King Ahaz, we, we go to the very thing that would destroy us and look to it to save us. And we see this again in Isaiah 8. The people, afraid of the times... Right, if you're here last week, we, the people that Isaiah is talking to, they're dealing with this political instability and this threat of, of invasion. And what do they do? They, they turn to everything but the Lord. Right, Isaiah 8, the people afraid of what's happening, they start to consult with mediums and magicians instead of turning to the Lord. And verse 21 and 22 say, Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. They will look toward the earth not to the heavens, not to the Lord. They will look to the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. They look toward the world, toward human resources to fix it, to fix the darkness, and it, it never can. Because here's the truth. They needed and we needed someone to step into our darkness and give us light. And so we, we come to our passage this morning, and the prophet Isaiah speaks a word of hope in the midst of darkness. Listen to, to verse 1 as it's translated in the NLT. It says, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. That time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. 
Isaiah says this land will be humbled. This land that, that is going to be brought to shame will be brought to glory. And it just happens to be this same land that young Mary and Joseph would walk through some 700 years later. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. A land of deep darkness could also be translated as a land where death casts its shadow. It's very likely in a room of this many people that some are living in this land right now, right? walking through the valley of death and dying. Um, I read this week that um, since the onset of the pandemic a couple of years ago, the percentage of adults uh, in Canada with self-reported depression more than doubled compared to pre-pandemic numbers. And the number of individuals reporting high to extremely high anxiety has quadrupled in that time. Now, here's the thing. The last couple of years, I think, have really just exposed problems that were there all along, right? Problems in our families, problems in our communities, problems in our workplaces. And something shifted. I mean, those numbers say that something has shifted for people. We've got, kind of gone back to a kind of normal, um, but it's not the same for many people. Right? And for many people, what I think going through that experience, what they ultimately came to see or believe is that no one really had their hand on the wheel um, and people had far less control than they thought. Um, just in the way that, you know, some global event that's totally outside of my control, some global event can just shake up my family and shake up my life. Right? Even now, you want to buy a cauliflower, it's like $10. Right? So what happened? My theory anyway is that people confronted that, that lack of control, and, and a whole host of other things, I'm sure, and, and had what, what you could call a crisis of, of meaning, Right? And so people sank into anxiety and depression, and that's not gone away. Listen to, this is not, not new, right? Listen to what Bertrand Russell, famous atheist uh, thinker, wrote some 120 years ago about his conception of the meaning of life. Here's what he says. He says, this idea that, that man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving... That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves, his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling, none of that can preserve an indiv individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of all the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius, all of that is destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, he says, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation be safely built. So his, his answer to the question, when you look at your life and you feel darkness and meaninglessness and you know, all of this is going to be burned up one day. 
The, the answer to that is to lean into it. You want a good life, come face to face with oblivion, he says, uh, which is one way of dealing with it. But here's the deal. Christmas doesn't just say, it's dark, so let's cheer up. String up some lights, get some eggnog, get everyone together. Christmas says it's dark. Yes, probably darker than you thought, but light is dawning, right? God is working in the darkness, just like with Mary and Joseph, right? Forced to go on this ridiculous trip to Bethlehem, 90 miles, by some far-off emperor who doesn't even know what they're doing. Their lives upended. God was working in the darkness. Light was dawning. And Isaiah, looking forward to this, reminds us of this beautiful and simple truth in verse 1. The time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. And that's so simple, but I think sometimes what we need in the midst of darkness are simple truths like that. The time of darkness will not go on forever. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. It's not always going to be this way. We, we read our kids the children's storybook Bible just about every, every night before bed. Um, there's so many stories uh, in that book that, that get me. If, a couple weeks ago, Lee quoted from a kid's, kid's Bible, so I feel like I've got permission to do that now. Um, one of the, the very last story in this book um, sums up the Apostle John writing the book of Revelations in exile on the island of Patmos. And listen to how it describes this hope that we have. It says, One day, John knew, heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home once again. And he knew, in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain, that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew that the ending of the story was going to be so great, it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow that's chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, said Jesus. I'll be there soon. Christmas means that light is on the horizon. What exactly that means, we'll flesh out in the rest of our time together this morning, but just stop and consider this. God... God wrote himself into the drama of human history. He, he brought himself into a tiny village in the middle of nowhere in the dark of night, a flash of light in the darkness, because he cares about you. He cares about the darkness that you're facing. And he grew up to be a man, and at the very start of his ministry, in the gospel according to Matthew, He, Matthew, claims that these verses are fulfilled in his arrival. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, Matthew quotes, and says, it's him, it's Jesus. This light is a person, Jesus Christ. He is this brightness, this glory that's replacing the gloom. And that has all kinds of implications, which brings us to our second point this morning. Christmas means that peace is advancing. You see, when you, when you look at the layout of our passage, this coming era of peace is the result of the dawning of the light. Verse 3, Isaiah starts addressing God. He says, you have, 
You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You have multiplied the nation. In Genesis 17, God, God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, I'll make you the father of a multitude of nations, right? By some mystery, this tiny nation of Israel will be multiplied. And if you jump all the way to Paul in the New Testament, he interprets this as an opening of the door to the Gentiles. That the, the family of God, the people of God is not limited to one ethnicity. And that's really good news for, I think, most of us in this room. Jesus says as much in John 10, 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, this ethnically Jewish fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So back to verse 3, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, this multitude of nations, as with, and then he gives two, two ways that Isaiah describes this joy the joy of being in in God's expansive kingdom. First, he says, it's like the joy of a harvest, which I think is hard for for us to understand when we can just, you know, go to the grocery store, go to the the deep freeze in the garage, right? The joy of of the harvest, what what does it mean? Well, at harvest, we're glad because our needs have been met and our future needs have been met. Right? Winter, winter is coming, but we have what we need. There's this gladness of, of plenty. Secondly, the joy, he says, is like the gladness when a victorious army divides the spoil. That's the gladness of a defeated enemy, the gladness of, of safety and security and, and victory. And so I think when we consider what we've been talking about, the, the, the darkness that all of us face at one point or another, doesn't it often come back to these things? I don't just mean the, the joy of having food or being safe, but these things in an ultimate sense, right? That my, my ultimate hunger has been satisfied, that my, my ultimate threat has been defeated, right? When you, when you know that, it changes everything. It changes how I wait in times of uncertainty. It changes the way that I, I look at my, my bank account or my future prospects. It changes the way that I look at my spouse or my kids or, or the people I work with. It's no mistake that, that Paul in Galatians 5, he talks about the fruits of the Spirit, and he says the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these things are the result of being in God's kingdom, living in God's kingdom. Now, what are the grounds of this joy? Verse 4 says, for or because the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Isaiah says, you, God, you have broken the yoke of our burden. You've broken the thing that held us in bondage. It harkens back to to Israel's days in Egypt, their days in slavery. 
Not only that, he says, you've broken the rod of the oppressor as on the day of Midian. Now, Isaiah, when he wrote that, could, could safely assume that his readers would know what he's talking about, right? It's this cultural touchstone, the day of Midian. Uh, like if I said D-Day, you'd know what I was talking about. In the book of Judges, this story is recorded for us. Gideon has, has an army of 22,000. He's set up for this victory. We don't need to know all the details, but he's got this huge army of 22,000, and, and he's going to have this great victory. And God says, it's too big. If you win this battle, you're going to grow proud. You've got too many men. Send them home. So all but 300 go home. Judges 7, the Lord told Gideon, with these 300, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. And God gives them this this great victory that can only be explained by the power of God, and that's the point, right? I will rescue you. I will give you victory. And that's the whole point of this section in Isaiah 9. It's, It's praise directed to a person. You have multiplied the nation. You have broken the rod. You have set us free. You've done it. This person is the wellspring of our joy, Isaiah says. And he keeps going. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. You see that uh, it's not just a victory, victory that causes joy in the singular sense, like we look back at a victory, but it's the promise of eternal universal peace, lasting, enduring peace. Because it's not just the bow and sword that that are going to be broken. It's the boots and uniforms that are going to be burned up. We're done with them. It's a symbol of the end. War is over. All of it. Christmas means that lasting and enduring peace is advancing. Even though it doesn't feel like it. Why can I say that? Well, look at verse 6. That word for shows up again. Shows up a couple times here, right? We had it in verse 4 and 5. The 4 explains the joy in verse 4 and 5. In verse 6, the 4, or the because, explains everything we've been talking about. All of it, the light, the joy, the peace, all of it is possible because of the next statement. All of it hinges on this proclamation. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. All of it is possible because a child is born. A son is given. Ray Ortland put it like this. He said, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. God's answer to the darkness the pain, the brokenness of this world is a child. The dawning of the light, the arrival of joy and enduring peace is brought to us, given to us in the form of a child. His arrival itself is a gift of grace, not merit. That leads us to our our final observation this morning. Christmas means a new kind of king is coming. This child, this, this son is a king. He's a ruler. Isaiah says that the government will be upon his shoulder. But this king is altogether different from the kings we've known or would have expected. He comes in weakness. 
in the form of a child. So listen, it, it seems like there are all kinds of things a leader can say or do uh, and get away with these days. Uh, but one thing, left or right, that seems to be unforgivable is being out of touch. Um, think back, remember back to the presidential debate of 1992. I'm sure that you remember it. Uh, I was two years old. It's George H.W. Bush and uh, Bill Clinton on the debate stage. And famously, Bush couldn't say how much a gallon of milk cost, and people lost their minds. How could you not know how much a gallon of milk costs? The problem wasn't that he didn't know what the price was. The problem was that it pointed to this idea that he doesn't get it. Right? He doesn't understand what it's like to have a budget as a family. Right? You have no clue what it's like to try and feed your family on a tight budget. Right? What it comes down to is this. We want a ruler, we want a leader in our lives who understands our lives. We want an authority who knows what it's like to be me. Right? God becomes a man. He comes in the frailty of humanity. He experienced the fullness of the human condition, all of it, right? One early church father put it like this. He said, he therefore passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, a child for children, and youth for youths. Jesus knows what it's like to be 12. (laughs) He knows what it's like to be 20. Hebrews says that Jesus was made like us, fully human in every way. That means that because he himself suffered when he was tried and tested, he's able to help those who are being tried and tested. The incarnation means that God suffered and that Jesus triumphed through suffering, and therefore he has infinite power to comfort. He knows what it's like. And what's this king's name? Name here sums up, character. What's his character? What kind of king is he? Isaiah says, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The perfection of of this king is seen in his name. He's the Wonderful Counselor. It's a supernatural wonder. It speaks to the the beauty of his, his counsel, the beauty of his wisdom, right? He had the infinite highness of being the mighty God, and yet he became enmeshed in our condition. He knows the, the price of milk. He knows what it is to be us, right? To have his friends bail out on him, to have his family drive him nuts, to be hungry, to be poor, to be sick, to be rejected, to face death. And because he's mighty God, And wonderful counselor, he brings a wisdom that's far above human wisdom. He's qualified for his title and for his position. Isaiah says, his name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God. His name is mighty God. Imagine the scene in heaven, right? Angels long to look into this mystery. God himself became human. He takes on our weakness to meet us in our weakness. He doesn't come as a conquering general. He's born as a baby, 
completely dependent, yet he holds together the universe with his word. But you see, it's not enough, it's not enough that he just relates to me. Right? That doesn't really matter if he isn't at the same time the mighty God with his hand on, firmly on the steering wheel of my life and my circumstances. Right? Empathy is great, but it doesn't mean much if, if you're not also at the same time controlling my future. He is mighty God. We can trust him. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. How does he relate to us? What's the nature of his relationship to his subjects? What kind of ruler is he? Listen, God loved you as a father before you were born. And God will love you after you die. In Scripture, God says, I I have loved you with an everlasting love. That is a, a fundamental truth of, of my identity and your identity. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Here's what I mean. The love of God shapes you and reshapes you. I say this to kids all the time when they're getting in trouble. Um, I, right? Kid gets in trouble. I say, I, I would ignore this if I didn't care about you. Right? I would let it slide if I didn't care about you. But I do care about you. I want what's best for you. So I'm not going to let it slide. Right? The love of God the Father directed at your life must change you or he doesn't love you. Listen, he's your father. It's never been, you know, get this figured out or we're finished. You better figure this out or we're done. Never. Yes, he's calling you and going to call you to higher things, but it's from a heart of a father who isn't going anywhere. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This new king is in the business of building his kingdom, and the society his rule creates is marked by peace. Listen to how Isaiah describes it. He says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. If he is the Prince of Peace and you are living under his rule and reign, are you experiencing this peace? Like now. You remember that old hymn, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Jesus came to give us peace. Through the cross, yes, like eternal, lasting peace, but also right now. Right? Also a deep heart and mind guarding peace in the midst of whatever you're facing. Peace. John 14, 27, Jesus says, my peace I give to you. It's, it's ours for the taking. So as we close, just a, a few implications for us to, to think about. 
if Jesus really is mighty God and everlasting Father, you can't just like him. Right? There's no space for indifference in your response to him. You can't, you can't just dismiss him as a baby at Christmas time or a, a good teacher. And you, you can see this in the response of people who actually saw and actually heard Jesus. Right? They, they never reacted with indifference. It was either outright rejection or total submission. People wanted to kill him or they wanted to bow down to him. If the, if the baby born at Christmas is the mighty God, then, then you must live under his rule. And if he really is the everlasting father, then to do so is a joy. And if Jesus really is the wonderful counselor and the prince of peace, then you should want to serve him. Right? If God really has been born in a manger, then we have something that, that no other worldview or religion claims to have. We have a God who, who knows our experience from the inside out. And if he, he is the Prince of Peace, which he is, to live in his kingdom is to experience peace in this life, even as he walks with us into and through the, the shadow of death. When I started, I shared a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You might know how his story ends. Uh, he was killed on April 9th, 1945, just days before the liberation of the concentration camp that he was in. Um, one of the, the people who witnessed his death later recalled a man, quote, devout, brave, and composed, said his death ensued after a few seconds. I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. A day earlier, Bonhoeffer had sent one final message to a friend where he wrote, this is the end, for me, the beginning of life. You see, he understood that what he waited for in that prison cell was not for liberation in this life alone, although that would have been great. What he waited for was something altogether greater. Listen to what he wrote during his fourth and final Christmas um, in a prison cell just a few months before his execution. He said, and then, just when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can scarcely withstand it, the Christmas message comes to tell us that all our ideas are wrong and that what we take to be evil and dark is really good and light because it comes from God. Our eyes are at fault, that is all. God is in the manger, wealth and poverty, light and darkness, succor and abandonment. No evil can befall us. Whatever men may do to us, they cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world and our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we pray that we would know you, really know you as wonderful counselor um, in the midst of whatever we're walking through, God, that we would know you as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God, that your, your peace would invade our lives in, um, in this season. We pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.